professional golfer Greg Norman was playing in the Australian Open. He he is Australian, or and and is uh, so it was home turf for him. On one particular bad hole of par five, he sliced the ball into the woods, far out of play. So, and then he uh, the same on his next shot had to bring it out and drop it again. He did a little bit better on his next shot. It went into the rough, though. Finally got onto the green and three-putted to score an eight on a par five. The best that came from this, though, is some hope that we can all have came from Paul Harvey's comment when he said, I always wanted to play like Greg Norman, and now I can. You know, for me personally, when it comes to golf, if I'm on the green in par, I'm celebrating. You know, I just treat the whole green like it's a big hole, right? I can pick it up from there and walk on. That's small enough for me to get that ball onto. But at least in this situation, I could play like Greg Norman for that one hole. And... We see in Peter's relationship with Christ today as we look at the evening, that that nighttime experience of Christ being arrested and beaten and and Peter being afraid to align himself with the man that he had just earlier in the evening said that he would die if necessary rather than fall away. We look at Peter and we say, I think I could follow Christ. We maybe even think, I think I could follow Christ better than Peter did. I I think we need to be careful of that or we might be guilty of the same thing that set Peter up for his failure. We looked this morning at the the roller coaster ride of transformation. I thought of the person who was tired of rocky friendship and they said, roller coasters are for amusement parks, not relationships. I shouldn't have to buckle up to be with you. I think that Jesus, if he were sinful like us, he could easily say that. Walking in relationship with me, probably walking in relationship with you, walking in relationship with any one of us. But he has a steadfast love. He has a gracious nature. Our relationship with God is by grace and it is a roller coaster of transformation because as we know from Romans 12, 1 and 2, that, that we are called to be set apart. We are called to be holy before the Lord. And that involves stopping being conformed and being transformed by the renewal of our mind. It's a over and over again every day, every moment if, if necessary. Some days it feels like every moment of I'm no longer going to be conformed to this Lord. But I want to be transformed by the renewal of my mind. I want to get across to you this morning that being transformed into God's man or God's woman involves returning to abide in Christ after failing to stand strong for him. It just does. That's what it involves. I'm not saying that's all of what a relationship or or transformation is, but it involves that. It involves returning to abide in Christ after failing to stand strong for him. 
I, I read something interesting about the mouth. You know, each person has a mouth. The mouth is the friend of the grocery man. It's the fortune of the dentist. It's the pride of the public speaker, but it is the trouble of a fool. And Peter is one who's usually making us feel better about ourselves by what comes out of his mouth. And this morning we look at, uh, we're transported into the upper room where Jesus is celebrating his final Passover with his disciples. And it is what we know on this side of history is the night that he's going to be delivered over to be crucified. And there he is in this, in this Passover meal taking the cup of the covenant. And he says, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. I, there, there's just messianic stuff going on all over the place in the disciples' minds. And, and here it comes. This is, this is the new covenant. This, this is Jeremiah 31. Of, of behold, I, I'm going to make with my people a new covenant. I will set my spirit within them. And so what do they do? They start arguing with each other over who's going to have the higher rank in the kingdom. That's what they start arguing with each other about. And Jesus breaks into this moment, and I apologize that the passage is not up on the screen this morning, but he breaks into this moment and informs Peter of what is going of what is uh, his, has been going on in an unseen dimension. What has been going on between Satan and God and Jesus as he intercedes, God the Father and God the Son. Where he says in Luke 22 is where we're at here. Luke 22 verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. It says, Peter, Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to, to, to go with you both to prison and to death. Peter knows exactly what is, is, um, is at stake here. He knows exactly what type of, of uh, temptation this is talking about. It's talking about a temptation to not be aligned with Christ. He says, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said to him, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times. Deny three times that you know me. So Jesus paints this picture, like I said, in, in another dimension of, of a discussion, maybe, maybe it's before the throne room of God like what we see in Job chapter 1. And looking at that, in Job chapter 1 we see where, where it says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going 
to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? And they say they start discussing Job and they start discussing the fact that, that Satan is kind of making a bet that he can make Job fail and, and so on. And, and that is, is somewhat of a window into, I think, of what Jesus is describing as a discussion that has been going on about his disciples. When he says, Satan demanded to have you, that he may sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. You see, Satan is known, his, his Hebrew name for Satan originally is the accuser. The accuser of God's people before the throne room of God, and an accuser before our minds as well. And we'll come to that. And, but Jesus is our advocate. He is our interceder for us. He is that defense attorney that stands before the judge. And we see that being played out in his relationship with his disciples. Now, it's something interesting here. The first you of verse 31, where he says, Satan demanded to have you. This is plural. Satan has demanded to have all of you. But the second you of verse 32 is, is singular, speaking specifically to Peter. When he says, but I have prayed for you. Uh, this, this idea of, of Satan wanting all of them, or, or, or um, it's reflected in Matthew 26 verse 31 when Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But Peter is addressed in this singular you, but I have prayed for you, Peter. It's like he's saying Satan demanded to have all of yous. But I have prayed for you, Peter, that you may not fail. You know, it's, it's hard for us to, to receive this, I think. It's kind of like we, we picture that God is supposed to be like a guard around us. And he's never supposed to allow anything to come in. He's never supposed to allow anything to encroach on us. He's never supposed to allow Satan to sift us. And we know from other passages of Scripture, like in James 1, that, that God is never guilty of tempting us. But God has greater purposes for everything that he allows. As I, I, I still love what Martin Luther said, the devil is still God's devil. Meaning, God, he cannot accomplish anything. He cannot do anything without God allowing it. One quick point I want to make just right here. When someone has failed in some way, we never know what conversation was going on in heaven leading up to that. We never know how God has planned for them to rise up. We never know what it is that God is allowing to be sifted out of them. So let's be real careful before we look at someone who makes a bad decision and says, well, I guess we know what they're like. It would be easy to say that about Peter if we didn't know this conversation going on. 
Will Peter fail? Yes and no. Will his faith falter? Yes. To the degree that Peter failed or denied Christ? Yes. And why is that? It's because Peter's, because Jesus' suffering, Jesus' arrest, Jesus' crucifixion, it did not fit into Peter's idea of what Jesus was to be about or the kingdom that his Messiah was going to bring. But Jesus prayed that Peter may not fail. And this means may not disappear completely. It's the same term that's used for the the moon completely eclipsing the sun. A total eclipse. There's not a total eclipse of Peter's faith here. Jesus' prayer was answered. He would turn again. He would obey Jesus' challenge to strengthen his brothers. What, What... the, the devil was given the authority to do was to sift. And what happens when something, when wheat is sifted or when, when dirt is sifted, what, what, is, what is being done there is that it's sifted to separate what is genuine, what is desired from other items that might have gotten mixed into it, from what is not desired. Now, you know, with wheat, it's to get the chaff off of the wheat. With dirt, it's to get the large or foreign objects out of the, the soil. By disturbing it, there's a good purpose of refining it. And by sifting all of the disciples, Satan hoped that they would all fall away, that they would all fail completely. But Jesus knew that by Peter standing fast, the other disciples were more sure to stand fast as well. But when? Jesus knew he would need to turn again. Jesus knew that it would come through the sin of denying him. This is kind of mind-blowing when you think about uh, the veil being pulled back for the Son of God to see the inner workings of what's going on here and to know how to pray for Peter and yet to know what is coming. And I challenge you to trust Christ no matter what God is allowing to happen What was sifted out of Peter's relationship with Jesus is pride. But I don't know about you, but from my experience, pride, it like never goes away completely. You can understand why it's called the root sin. It is the root of all sin. But Jesus make, or Peter makes that bold claim in verse 33. Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Makes me think of a of an indie driver, you know, that keeps getting called by his crew chief saying, "Come in for tires, come in for tires, come in for tires." No, I'm the best. I can do this. I can make it. What's going to happen? He's going to blow a tire. Does that mean he's not going to finish the race? No. But he's not going to place where he thought he was going to. And I'll bet you will listen to his crew chief next time. That's transformation, isn't it? Peter's heart aches from personal experience when he tells his readers in 1 Peter 5, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. 
God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour I think Peter got some transformation on this night. I think he had some of that pride sifted out of him on this night. And I think we see it in his words to the church in 1 Peter 5 here. Thomas Aquinas said something, and I was listening to a Ravi Zacharias message this week, and he referred to this, and it's a, it's a it's an odd quote to me, but, but I, I think it comes into play here. I'm still processing it. He says, in order to overcome pride, God punishes certain men by allowing them to fall into sins of the flesh, which, they, which though they be less grievous, are more evidently shameful. In other words, he's saying pride is so grievous, but yet we ignore it. That some men and women, God will allow us to fall into sins that are more shameful to us so that we'll be alerted to the grievous pride in our hearts. And I think that's what we're seeing happen with Simon. Lord, though all fall away, I will never. I will be imprisoned. I will even die rather than fall away. And we know what happens next. What about you? What sifting are you going through? Maybe it even involves bad decisions. Maybe it even involves realizing I'm not as holy as I thought I was. God's at work. God hasn't set you aside. I love that statement from Jesus, when you have turned again. That door is always open to turn again. What sin cycle are you in? It's pride that leads you there. I can tell you if you you get to the end of the day and you think, wow, I don't think I needed much of God's grace today. You're there. When you have turned, strengthen your brothers, he says. When you have repented, that means, and we'll come back to this when it happens for Peter in our passage here this morning. Peter has has his world shattered when his hero Messiah is arrested and tried. And we see in these verses, and I want to challenge you, stand for Christ even when he seems unpopular. Stand for Christ even when he seems unpopular. And so we jump to verse 34 of Luke 22. And this is after they've gone and they're praying. They've prayed in the garden and, and, and Jesus has, has, has encouraged his three closest disciples, Peter, James, and John, stay awake and pray that you might not fall into temptation. I think he still has this prayer knowledge that they would fall away but that they need to return. On the back of his mind, 
So we see in verse 54, then they seized him, speaking of the group that comes with, with Judas and, and the, the, the temple guards. And, and it says they seized him and they led Jesus away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Peter's trying to blend in here. Okay, John, who, who uh, wrote the Gospel of John, he's an eyewitness. He's in there in the, the courtyard with them. He, he describes this in a, in a unique way. He describes Peter as being with the men around the fire, the same way he described Judas as being with the mob that came to, to arrest Jesus. This is what John saw going on and how he described it in his gospel, describing Peter's positioning, his, his, his um, demeanor. Then we read in verse 56, Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light of the fire, that is, and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, certainly this man also is with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately when he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. I appreciate how the Bible expository commentary uh, weaves the courses of the events together from, from all of the gospel narratives. And so I'll just walk through that. It says, first, it was one of the high priest servant girls who challenged Peter. She accused him of being with Jesus and of being one of his disciples. Peter lied and said, woman, I am not one of his disciples. I do not know what you, I do not know him. I do not know what you are talking about. Matthew 26 tells us that he left the fire and went over to the porch. It says Peter could not escape the notice of a second servant girl who told bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. He is one of them. And for a second time, Peter lied and said, I am not. I do not know the man. The bystanders were not convinced. John 18 tells us, then shows up a relative of someone who had a who Peter had attacked with a sword while defending Jesus in the garden. And that relative asks, didn't I see you in the garden with him? And others join in and and said, surely you are one of them because the way you talk gives you away. You talk like a Galilean because Galileans had a specific kind of dialect compared to the people of Judea. At this point, Peter used an oath and said, I do not know the man. I don't know what you're talking about. And it was then that the rooster crowed for the second time and the Lord's prediction was fulfilled. I remember seeing um, one of my guilty pleasures, okay, here. Kelly says I'm like childish for loving these things, but I love YouTube close call, like GoPro videos, okay? They're like, you know, fail force one, those sort of things. uh, But anyways... um, the one of them that I was watching that just was like, I'm sitting here like, oh my gosh, what is going to happen? Is it was a camera mounted on the back side underneath the canopy of a hang glider. 
and it was a, a, a duo hang glider, and, and the men were ready to go, and they were ready to push off. And with hang gliding, you, you, they have their hands on the control arm, but they're in a harness, and the harness is hooked up to the frame of the glider. And, and you see sometimes that the, 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 um, the video pauses and circles the guy on the right, and it says, it shows his harness, and it says, hooked in. And it circles the guy on the left, not hooked in. And they, sure enough, they go off the cliff, and all of a sudden the guy on the left is hanging by one arm from this hang glider. He's like 500 feet off the ground. And it is, you'll have to look this up, it is like six minutes of the two of them struggling to just keep this guy holding on by one hand and the other guy is trying to grab his pant leg and grab his harness and all of this until they can get close enough to the ground for him to survive the, the fall. And I thought of that picture. And the fact is, is that in our pride we think, I can hold on by my own strength. Lord, you've brought me far enough. I can take it from here. I can face any temptation. I can face any trial. Though everyone fall away, I will not. But the fact is, guys, we are meant to be carried in the harness of his grace and enjoy the ride. Enjoy abiding in him. Enjoy walking with him. The horror that Peter is witnessing is more than his personal strength can handle But he's still called to stand for, stand for Christ even when he seems unpopular. But he denies him. Let me ask you something. We're commanded to deny. But who are we commanded to deny? Somebody want to say it? Self. We're called to deny self. Not Christ. And that's what Jesus said in Luke 9.23. I mean, picture his, his words echoing in Peter's head here as he's standing here looking at what's happening to his Messiah. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. But instead, Peter denied Christ when he was called to deny himself. This is probably the money shot for me from this passage. When the Lord helped me make this connection here, and I realized when I face a temptation or a trial, I need to think in these terms. You need to think in these terms. Will I deny Christ and follow my selfish, sinful desires or self-protectiveness? Denying him his glory, denying him his lordship, denying him being worthy of my sacrifice, of myself? Or will I deny myself, my selfishness, and my sinful desires to follow him? That's what it came down to in this moment for Peter. And he made the decision that I probably would have made too. What's at stake when we're tempted to sin? What's at stake is our abiding in Christ. 
Our, our walking by his spirit, our ability to bear fruit according to John 15, our, the fruit of the spirit of love and joy and peace and patience, the ability to, to interact in relationships and have his spirit flow through us, that is what is at stake if we know Christ as our savior. When we're tempted to sin, when we're tempted to deny Christ rather than denying ourselves, And the loss of these pleasures in Christ, of walking by His Spirit, bearing His fruit, is what should drive you to return to abide in Christ even after you've abandoned Him. Because that's what sin is. It's an an abandonment of the Lord rather than denying ourselves. Verse 61 is probably one of the most piercing sentences for me in the scripture. Like, I don't, I don't think you could ever embody it in a movie. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Wow. He denies him. The rooster crows. And Jesus turns and locks eyes with him. Here's what's amazing. Jesus' prayer was still about to be answered. I don't think this is a look of Peter, how could you? I think this is a look of Peter. Here's where it's about to get awesome. Why do I say that? It says, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. I don't think this is Peter's darkest moment. This is Peter turning again. This is Peter realizing, how could I have ever been so foolish? How could I have ever been so prideful to think that I, that I in my strength could do this? This is Peter in his most hopeful moment because he's turning. He's turning. This is Peter's returning to the Lord, brokenhearted over his sin. As King David explained in his own spirit of repentance, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Recall Peter's, Jesus' words to Peter, Peter, when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And this is the same term that Peter will use when he preaches the gospel in Acts 3.19. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. And Peter used the same term when he describes repentance to his readers in 1 Peter 2.25. For you were straying like sheep, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseers of your souls. He knows that from experience. Next week we'll look at Peter's recommissioning by Jesus. 
on the Sea of Galilee. But that is not where Peter turned. That is not where Jesus' prayer was answered. This is when he walks out, runs out of there weeping bitterly with a broken and contrite heart. Ernest Hemingway wrote of a story. I might have shared this before, but I love it. In in his book, The Capital of the World, he writes, no one could really say why he ran away, or perhaps he didn't but was kicked out of his home by his father or something foolish that he, for something foolish that he had said or did. Either way, Paco found himself wandering the streets of Madrid, Spain with hopes of entering into a profession that would most likely get him gain, bullfighting. Those who train under a mentor have a good chance of surviving this profession, but Paco's memory of his mistakes and guilt over what happened blindly drove him into this one this one way street to suicide of bullfighting but what was the last thing his father but that was the last thing that his father wanted which is why he tried something desperate which he desperately hoped would work there was little to no chance that he would be able to find Paco by wandering the streets of Madrid. So instead, he put an advertisement in the local newspaper, El Liberal. The advertisement read, Paco, meet me at the Hotel Montana at noon on Tuesday. All is forgiven. Love, Papa. The fact is, Paco was such a common name in Spain that when the father went to the Hotel Montana the next day, At noon, there were 800 young men named Paco waiting for their fathers and waiting for the forgiveness that they never thought was possible. What a blessing for Peter to be told ahead of time, you're going to turn again. It's what God tells us when he says, He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because it's God who's at work in you. Both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Every sin that we commit has been paid for by Christ. Still, each one does add to the suffering that Christ had to endure. And still does pull us away from abiding in Christ as we're able to and away from the abundant life that is in Christ. Do you know what the direct opposite of the term in the New Testament for deny is? Confess. If Peter had been perfect, that's what he was supposed to do. Confess Christ, not deny him. We talked about Satan being the accuser. And we talked about how he accuses us before the throne of God as not being worthy of God's grace. And that's, that's God sitting there going, yeah, that's, that's why it's called grace. You know where else Satan becomes the accuser? After we've sinned. And he accuses us of not being worthy to return. 
So just in the same way that when we sin, we should be denying ourselves, but we're denying Christ, his lordship. When we deny Christ, we shouldn't be denying him, we should be confessing Christ. And on the other side of sin, when that accuser is saying, there's no going back, there's no returning, there's no turning again, the answer is still confess. Confess. To confess it to the Lord. To confess it to a brother or sister and find accountability for fighting it. Peter would see Jesus again. It's pretty amazing. This is why I say, uh, well, Jesus was still intent on using Peter. Jesus was still intent on Peter being significant. One writer says, the whole experience, far from disqualifying Peter from Christian service, would actually result in a responsibility for him to strengthen his brothers. And we know that Peter was chief on Christ's mind after his resurrection. The angels mentioned Peter's still key role in Mark 17 when they announced Jesus' resurrection. And they say, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. When the disciples that were on the road to Emmaus come back and they hear about Jesus appearing to the women, they also says, and the Lord also appeared to Simon. Jesus appeared specifically to Peter. We don't know what went on there, but it was special. I, I think Peter got an attaboy for strengthening his brothers after he turned again. I just want to close reading from 1 Peter 2, 21 through 25, because Peter is challenging those who are suffering for following Christ. Peter is challenging those who are under pressure to deny Christ. And what picture does he paint? He paints the picture of the suffering that he saw in the courtyard. He says, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting to him who judges justly. And Peter shares what he came to realize later, why Jesus was beaten and crucified. In verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. Peter was not foreseeing Jesus' wounds. And Peter speaks from experience when he completes his thought in verse 25 as we also read earlier. For you were straying like sheep, but you now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You see the picture of Peter's experience through all of that? I saw his suffering. I was right there. And he knows your suffering. And he knows how you're tempted to just pull the ejection seat and say, I'm sick of denying myself. I'm going to deny Christ. 
And he, and he voices repentance as returning to your shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Peter speaks from experience. I think you can too. Let's pray.